So you always want to be prepared to... To set goals. To be really disruptive. Diversity is fundamental. It is just trusting those super strengths. To recover from those failures and, and learn from them. Humility looks like the softest word, but it's kind of the hardest. We ourselves are in beta mode. Life goes on. Sporting Edge, inside the mind of champions. Welcome to the Inside the Mind of Champions podcast. My name is Jeremy Snape. I'm a former England cricketer with a master's degree in sports psychology. Since retiring, I've been fortunate to work with and interview some of the world's most successful thinkers and performers. And I'm passionate about translating their habits and routines into practical strategies to help you become more successful. In each episode, I'll be dissecting a common performance challenge to help you improve your mindset, your leadership and your team performance. To me, our mindset is the next frontier. So let's find out why. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Inside the Mind of Champions, where we're going to be exploring risk, like the recent episode on exploring trust. Um, I hope it provides you with a series of thought-provoking reflections and insights from the experts that we've interviewed for our Sporting Edge library. I typed in the keyword risk into the platform as a spark of inspiration, and that's given me a load of results that I've selected a few that really resonated with me personally, and I'm going to link those together to hopefully give you some confidence and clarity around some of the decisions that maybe you've been pondering over in today's commute, lunch break, or dog walk, or wherever you're listening in from today. Here's a taste of what's coming up in today's show. So when your brain's looking at all of these things to know, it can say, ooh, that one, the one that was when I felt afraid or the one that was when I felt really happy. When we make decisions, we can be overly focused on the risks without recognizing the gains. You know, you have to be a brave artist. No one wants to see pedestrian art. The winner effect um, can cause people to become so cocky and euphoric that they take on more and more risks until eventually they're taking um, ill-considered risk. Too much risk with bad risk-reward trade-offs. These are the moments we live for, you know, as competitive human beings in sport. You know, those are the moments you live for and it's a privilege to be part of that. Embrace that privilege. Many of us face periods of uncertainty and there doesn't seem to be a clear path and every option we think about seems to have risks attached. So what is a risk? Well, dictionaries define it as the possibility of something bad happening. And we'll come back to that word possibility later. Risks can expose you to a degree of physical, financial or emotional danger. But they also act as a bridge that we need to cross to be able to pursue new opportunities and exciting periods of growth. Aside from the physical dangers, we have psychological risks and they seem to magnify in our teens. We worry so much about the rejection or humiliation in our social group so we don't go and speak to that attractive girl or boy across the schoolyard. And then 30 years later, that same pattern repeats itself where we don't contact that senior leader or CEO or influential person 
because we fear rejection. So we'd rather not take that risk. So we're always fixating on that social and psychological cost. We have a very clear view in our imagination of that social or emotional cost of failure or rejection in those examples. But what's the cost of staying still, of not taking that risk? Maybe it's boredom, maybe it's frustration, and it's probably more importantly regret. By reframing the way these opportunities are seen, it can be seen as a risk not to take them. Before we get into how to assess risks, we need to understand why we're predisposed to hear these psychological alarm bells when we perceive a risky situation lying ahead. And the key here is our perception. And that allows for my personal judgment of how big the threat is and whether I can actually cope with it. So these rules and beliefs are primed from our early experiences and are accessed in a split second to keep us moving forwards or to make us freeze. We asked Deera Harris, who's a physician and a high performance specialist with the Toronto Blue Jays, about this exact topic. And in this part of her interview, she explains how our memory selects key experiences from the past to help us to assess risk in the present. But it's not a particularly balanced retrieval system. So if you think about the unbelievable task of taking all the information you get in a single minute, even us sitting across from each other. We hear sights, sounds, the last thing we said, and our amazing brains have to funnel that down into only the parts we need to remember. So one of the best ways we do that is we attach emotion to it, right? So when your brain's looking at all of these things to know, it can say, ooh, that one, the one that was when I felt afraid, or the one that was when I felt really happy. So it's like putting a little flag on top of an endless array of tiny little mountains of memories, okay? So we use the emotions. Failure, especially in a public way or something like a sport, puts a very large flag, right? So when your brain goes back in and it has all these mountains to choose from, it goes to the one with the really big flag. And then over and over that happens. When you need to understand a process, Having a failure flag and an emotional thing is good because it tells you, all right, I want to learn what happened. Once you understand what happened, then it needs to be new targets and new things to work on, right? It's not endlessly reviewing the failure. That's what our brain will do. Find to understand it. And, and that's part of the learning mechanism is that your brain says, go back, understand this. The key is once you understand it, move on. <laughs> you know? And that's the place where a lot of people get stuck. So our brain needs to keep us safe, to keep us alive. Our ancestors would have needed to remember what the roar of a lion sounds like or where those poisonous berries were located. It was designed to avoid physical danger. So freezing as a predator cruised past was probably a good option. But the challenges in our modern world often aren't physical and they're rarely life-threatening. They may feel like it, but they're really not. They're more psychological such as a threat to our self-esteem or our reputation that we've tried so hard over the years to make look perfect. Our primitive brain tells us that this new activity seems like a risk too far. We could get our self-esteem compromised, so why don't we stay safe? So we need to challenge the stories we tell ourselves to make sure that we don't get stuck in a rut. Yes, we might have made a mistake when we played in the first team last time or... 
We said somebody's name wrong when we made our last speech on stage. But after a blush and the odd snigger, those memories shouldn't prevent us from having another crack. Life is best lived forward and daily risk-taking gives us that essential momentum. You could argue that anything that we do in our lives that we're proud of was a risk before we did it. And that's why we feel proud, because we took the risk, we committed our skills, we worked with other people and we got the job done. And that's why we're so proud of ourselves, because it would have been easier to stay safe. So taking that job, booking that new restaurant, creating this podcast is a risk. Again, our mindset here is the key because as I write these episodes, I'm curious about the topic I'm exploring and trying to express myself. My voice might not be quite as velvet as many and my thinking might not be as forensic as some, but with the time and resources that I've got today, this is my best effort. And I'm actually focused more on how you can benefit from the content rather than how you judge me. And that allows me to create this. Stuart Warden is the principal of the Brit School for the Arts and Music, a fascinating school in London that's produced so many great stars. We heard him uh, speak a few episodes back about that adventurous mindset. And this is similar. In this particular um, point, he gives us a philosophical question in relation to whether we want a safe life or whether we want to take risks. I've had some amazing, amazing people work at that place that have helped me. Um, and I, the staff are extraordinary. They are so courageous. They come to me, <laughs> and I usually never say no to any of their ideas. So someone says, oh, we're going to do a dance piece and we're going to do it about the jungle in Calais. No school does that. We're going to do a music piece, but we're going to do it about HIV. We're going to go and work in a prison. We're going to go, we're going to, go to a hospice and work with people in the last few months of their lives and write songs with them before they die. Cool. Let's do that. So, you know, if you've got the courage to say, okay, let's really have a conversation about, and, and art does that. Art's like full of like, um, you know, you have to be brave artists. No one wants to see pedestrian art. You know, like if you go into London along Piccadilly, no one buys those paintings that are, are, are outside the Ritz if you want good art. Good art is only, you know, through taking a risk and not trying to be the same as anyone else. So. Yeah. So I guess the question is, do you want to live like a carbon copy of everyone else? Or do you want to be an original, a quirky, expressive and provocative work of art? When we lose our confidence, living like a photocopy of last year's habits and choices seems really safe. Comforting but dull, defensive and monochrome. But when we're open to growth and the risk that comes with that, then it can end up looking much more like that Indian festival of Holi, where there's colour flying everywhere and we're expressing ourselves and dynamic, where no two people come out looking the same. To achieve this, we need to paint a more positive picture in our mind to balance out those negative memories that get prioritised to keep us alive. So instead of asking what could go wrong, we need to ask what could go right? Yes, we might feel bad if we apply for a job and we don't get it, but imagine if we do. On the other side of that risk lies a new adventure, a new network, new skills, maybe a new city, a new future. Wandy Brain de Brain is a professor of decision making. And in this insight from her interview, she encourages us to create a rational framework for making decisions rather than all those emotions in our head. 
one that outlines the possibilities objectively on paper. How can leaders balance risk versus gain? Um, I think that um, when we make decisions, we can be uh, overly focused on the risks without uh, recognizing the gains. So let's say you uh, lose 10 pounds, then you would uh, worry more about having lost those 10 pounds than you would be happy about having gained 10 pounds in, a, in, a, in another situation. So we worry more about losses than about gains. Um, and uh, sometimes that can harm our decision making um, because really choosing between options meaning, means thinking about the, the losses and the gains that they might bring. So to really carefully balance the risks and the gains, um, I think the recommendation from decision research would be to carefully look at each option systematically and rate how much you like uh, or worry about each risk uh, and each gain, and then take the average rating that you would give, uh, and then overall options that have relatively uh, good gains compared to the risks will have better ratings. Uh, that's a systematic way to incorporate uh, the, ri the risks and the gains. So to progress our personal strategy, we need to commit all of our thoughts to paper to get it out of our head where it's swirling around and tangled with emotion and write it down so we can write down all the imagined downsides. Think about your fears or consequences of each of the decisions and maybe add another column about how likely they are to happen. Remember that definition that we started with was about the possibility of something bad happening to us. Well, what about the probability of something bad happening to us? How likely is this catastrophe? Often it's not uh, that likely at all, and it's an important step to consider. Mark Twain famously said, I've had a lot of worries in my life, many of which never happened. So we need to see the upsides and the benefits as well to play out that sequence. What happens if I do get the job? What happens if I do move to a new area or meet new people and earn more money and travel to different places? How good would that life be? That all starts with this first risk, but it does feel like a risk. But we need to have a balanced view of the positives and negatives. Many businesses are trying to change their strategy at the moment, and that can feel like a risk. For example, if you're narrowing down a niche, that feels really risk. We've been risky. We've been used to serving, you know, broad services to lots of people and everything felt safe. Now it feels like a risk to be doubling down on one product or one sector or one service line. But again, map out the positive path too. If we get known for excellence in that specific area, we could be the go-to person or the go-to business and be inundated with people because we stand out in that niche. The key is assessing these decisions and these opportunities rationally. And maybe some of your friends and colleagues can help you to create this balanced appraisal because sometimes we need to get out of our own head when we've just got that negative view of the world. Another classic coaching technique is to change the timeline to help you to look at a particular decision that you're about to make. How will the decision look and feel in five years time? If it's a success, what will it feel like? And if it's a failure, what would it feel like? 
In five years, you'll have probably recovered, learned some great lessons and found a new path to success rather than being stuck with the regret of not knowing whether it would have worked or not, which is where you currently are. Like many things, the culture of a family, friendship groups or the organisation that we're operating in can affect how we perceive a risk. I love this insight from Sir Dave Brailsford from our interview with him, where he explains how Team Sky later became Team Ineos, um, where the riders reframe the way they're looking at risk to capture those epic Tour de France victories. When we set out with a, you know, with, with a, with a tactical plan, um, everybody needs to totally understand what role they play in it, but equally have that uh, confidence and reassurance, and certainly the confidence from the management or the coach and the coaching staff that should things change and they take an opportunity or they try and take an opportunity to try and deliver the tactical thing that that if they do it and get it wrong then they shouldn't be shouting and screamed at for a while um, in team sky when we started out um, we we noticed that you know maybe there was an attack on a hill by one of the top riders and and, and our, sometimes our guys, they would hesitate a little bit and because you've got a split second to think right I'm on the limit here, shall I go? Could I, could I still ride for another three or four Ks at, at this level? Or, no, I'll play safe, I'm all right here, I'll stay here. And so we, we, we try to think about, in order to succeed, in order, ultimately if you won a race, you'll have taken, constantly making decisions, and those decisions will be about a risk or safe, risk, safe, risk, safe. And we found that actually when you won a race, you've taken quite a few key decisions which are risk decisions you don't know what the outcome is going to be but then you've done it again and again and ultimately you get to the win and so what we're trying to do we try to reframe the, the the guy's thinking and what we're trying to do is said right as we're going along through the race you can take a risk or you can play safe and if you play safe and come in at let's say 15th in the race then okay that's that's the position you get there if you take a risk you might take another risk and go on and win but equally, you might take a risk and it might not work at all and you might come 100th and it could be catastrophic. So what we'd like to, to, for you as a rider to think is that we would see the first as total success. We'd see the second as partial success, is how we term it, and a third as failure. And I think they were framing it very much in a view that 15th actually wasn't too bad. I'm all right here. I've done okay. But it wasn't. You know, we would prefer to say, look, we, we, that's failure. Try and take a risk, take a gamble. And we'll then, you know, it's not recklessness, but it's it's calculated decisions, and we'll see that's partial success. So we'd much prefer you to do that. You get a pat on the back for that. Running fifteenth, playing safe. No thanks. So that's a really interesting reframe, and it's probably one of the key building blocks on why Team Sky and Team Ineos had so much success under Dave Brailsford's leadership. This is where the riders' default was that natural urge to stay safe. I'd rather be 10th or 15th than 100th. Who wouldn't want to be? But Dave knew that that kind of thinking would never produce a champion. So they encouraged calculated risk-taking that would ultimately lead to worse results. Most decisions look like they have a binary outcome, success or shame. But high performance seems to be the compound effect of small risks which pay off. Not reckless, but single, courageous acts of strategic ambition that push the limits time after time, almost like we're climbing a staircase to achieve our goal. 
So maybe we can learn from this Tour de France example. Winning comes from several steps, one after the other, not one binary leap off a cliff, going straight off-road, careering down the mountain to beat the peloton down the valley. That rarely works. As with our earlier example, the first risk is going to the networking event. The second risk is walking over to the key contact that you'd like to meet. The third risk is talking to them. The fourth risk is asking for their contact details and the fifth risk is calling them. Before you know it, you've actually taken eight to ten small risks, but now you're in that golden position with their attention and with all the options to take it where you want to. You couldn't have dreamt of that sitting on your sofa and missing out on the networking event, but there you have the pain of regret of what could have been. And in fact, you'll never know. There's definitely something so liberating about caring less about what people think and caring more about following your passion and following your own path. Most people aren't looking anyway. They're also worried about everything that's going on in their world. So you may as well go for it while they're not looking. So now we're off the sofa and we're taking risks. We need to find a balance that's right for us. I'm fascinated about the England cricket team at the moment even aside from Ben Stokes's truly remarkable innings in the Ashes, they're batting at a much higher than normal tempo, which comes with increased risk. I remember as a player, we used to talk about this mother cricket, almost the invisible law of balance and karma that knocked you back into size uh, if you got too cocky or too big for your boots. This was a universal law known by all cricketers that says, you can do well and you can take some risks, but if you start being blasé, and you lose respect for your opposition or the basics of the game, then you're going to come back to earth with a bang. There's one classic example where this happened to the female snowboarder, Lindsay Jacobellis. It's worth Googling. She was way ahead of her rivals in the gold medal position in Turin in 2006, and she tried to do a fancy side flip for the cameras to celebrate her gold medal, and she landed on her arse in a heap, and watched her distant rival speed past her and steal her gold medal. There are times to showboat and take risks, and there are times to get your head down and get the job done. Champions know the difference. And the great end to that story is that after 16 years of chasing her quest, after that showboating shocker, Lindsay Jacobellis finally won gold in Beijing. And you won't be surprised to hear that she didn't attempt the high-risk move again. Brilliant basics secured her gold medal and her redemption. One person who's lived with and studied risk is John Coates, who was a Wall Street trader in his first career and then became so fascinated about decision-making under pressure that he became a neurobiologist to translate what he'd learnt on the trading floor and combine it with the latest research to create an actionable set of tools for those managing risks. His book's called The Hour Between Dog and Wolf, if you're interested. I asked him about this danger of taking too much risk and he explained a fascinating principle from the animal world called the winner effect. There's a well-established phenomenon called the winner effect in which an animal that's won a competition or a fight is statistically more likely to win the next round of competition it goes into. And this is one a very robust finding in animal behavior. They've, they've documented it in about two dozen animal species. I think that's prima facie reason for believing that something similar might happen in, um, 
human activities, particularly in sports, but also in other forms of competition in the corporate world. What they found when they went in, because they found what happens is that an animal that's won a, a competition is statistically more likely to win the next round of competition. They went in looking for the mechanism that might be driving this, and what they found was that their anabolic hormones of the animal were rising, and this was preparing them for competition. Um, so that animals going into competition, their anabolic hormones would rise. The winner would come out with even higher levels, the loser with lower levels. So the winner would go into the next round of competitions already with this, um, you know, ripped on roids, so to speak, naturally. We, it, and that gives them a, an, an edge, helping them to win again. Um, so it appears that we've got harbored within our physiology what amounts to a self-doping mechanism where winning leads to higher anabolic hormones, which leads to an increased chances of winning again. We think what's, what goes on, um, that the winner effect um, can cause people to become so cocky and euphoric that they take on more and more risks until eventually they're taking um, ill-considered risk, too much risk with bad risk-reward trade-offs. You can see this in financial traders that are on a winning streak. You can see it in athletes that suffer from the red mist. I think it's called. You can see it in political leaders, military leaders, and we think this is a physiological mechanism of the winner effect that underlies it until eventually you've taken so much risk with such terrible risk-reward trade-offs that you blow up. And that's kind of a common pattern we see for people, you know, it's the parabola of classic tragedy. People reach too far and then suffer the consequences. So we can picture the scene, the gazelle strutting their stuff out in the sunshine of the open plains after winning a scrap in the secluded forest, almost like a lap of honour, celebrating their success carefree and not thinking. And then they get taken down. But how do we know when to stop a winning role? How do we maintain our purple patch without falling from grace? I think for most industries, there's a risk to reward ratio and great performers, leaders and teams are able to operate at that top end consistently. But they don't over egg it. They don't push it too far, because if you do operate over it for too long, then we're going to see problems. We have runners going out too hard early in the first half of a marathon and then ended up slower uh, because they didn't really pace themselves. And I definitely remember in the early days of T20 cricket, our first practice match at Leicestershire, which is where I was playing, was over in about an hour. I think both sides were out for 40 and 50. We were so fixated on this being a really condensed short format compared to what we were used to that we just thought we'd got to smash every ball and take massive risks. And that was way too big a risk that we were taking and and ultimately we collapsed in a heap. But after a bit of a review, I'm glad we did because we worked out that if you lost three wickets in your first power play of six overs, then you were going to struggle to build back the momentum and it would compromise your lace to score. So in effect, the lower order wouldn't then be able to take the risks that they needed at the back end of the innings. So it's because the front, the top order had taken too many risks too early and we'd been compromised. So we developed a plan where instead of having our best hitters all up front trying to hit fours and sixes, we combined a hitter and a skillful rotator, somebody who could get the hitter back on strike. And it was this blend of styles and tempos which really helped to secure a positive run rate and still have wickets for the end of the innings. 
So in my head, as I reflect back in it, I'm thinking we were going at about 75% risk for 17 overs out of the 20, and then 95% or 100% risk for the last three overs, where other teams were maybe going at 85% risk early, and then sometimes crashing and burning before the game got going. T20 is such a volatile format of the game, but having this understanding of how to control our own minds or our own skills under pressure is really, really important because there's a band of risk taking. And that's definitely one of the reasons that we got through to the first four finals out of 18 teams in a knockout format, and we won two of them. So understanding this band of risk taking that starts just at the edge of our comfort zone and then ends up sort of leading to failure on the far end of that band. We've got to work within that band, understand how we can tolerate risk, how we can mitigate risk, but be able to take some of those risks and stretch ourselves. And it was really interesting. I was selected for the England team in the T20 World Cup, the very first one in South Africa. I think it was 2007. And we put a range of aggressive players at the front of the order. And we had people like Andrew Flintoff and Kevin Peterson, world-class players. But by just taking too big a risk early on, yes, we could have demolished some teams by you know, being brilliant in some games, but it was a high-risk strategy. And ultimately, we didn't quite get it right. And it resulted in a frenzy of swinging and missing and a lot of early collapses. And we never really progressed in that tournament. So this new era of baseball is fascinating in terms of risk. I'd love to see the players understand that context and the upper edge of this risk band rather than just saying, that's the way we play. You win some, you lose some. You have to be careful with that kind of approach because it can lead to a lack of accountability. And while we're all thrilled by the entertaining style of play, we also want them to win. And that comes from managing risk very carefully. Coming back to the wider context of trying to mitigate the hubris of the winner effect, one way is to try and speak to a range of people who are medium to high risk takers in your community or your business. They will have more of an appetite for those kind of risks than people say who might have said, oh, you should have stopped a while back. But canvassing the opinion of those people who have slightly different risk profiles will definitely give you a balanced view of whether you should keep pushing to the edge of that risk band or whether you should step back back inside it for a little while and sort of um, you know bank your winnings if you like. So it definitely will stop us going all out and going bust. Another way to mitigate risks is to think about where your strengths lie. You know, if you've got particular strengths in an area, then it won't seem a risk to you if you're really competent, whereas other people who don't have that skill would see that as a massive risk. And some of the world's extreme sports athletes don't see what they do as a risk. It's remarkable. They find it exhilarating because they've got that expertise, but they also have a rigorous process and a meticulous system to mitigate the risk. They have a safety line or a well-checked parachute, if you like. They also know not to make decisions when they're tired or hungry because that can compromise and we don't um, consider the risk profile properly when we're sort of running on fumes. So there's a precise preparation which gives people the confidence aligned with their strengths so that they can commit even when the stakes are really high. So somehow we need to find the courage to express ourselves and to embrace these opportunities for growth and these amazing experiences. And these shouldn't feel like a set of fearful staccato steps. 
when we're just grinning and bearing it. Best-selling author of the book Legacy, which is about translating the lessons from the All Blacks into business and life, James Kerr, articulates this in his normal, illuminating way in this insight from his interview, talking about pressure being a privilege. If we talk about embracing expectation and the courage that that takes, um, I think one of the you know, the secrets, if you like, um, that the All Blacks have done so well is they realise that people play best when they're really enjoying it, you know, when they're celebrating it. And by bringing a sense of gratitude and a sense of the moment uh, and the, the, the privilege uh, that, it, that, it, that it is to kind of pull on a black jersey and run out there, that embracing of that expectations creates a space where people will express themselves um, try new things um, uh, and 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 keep pushing that kind of a, a, a you know intuitive competitive advantage if you like. Um, so so you know is courage the right word for it? Is it just kind of fronting up and putting on a brave face? I'm, I think it's more about realizing that you know there's a lovely phrase um, that that pressure is a privilege. You know that if you're not under pressure, it's 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 like riding a motorbike and the wind's not in your face. What's the point? You know, these are the moments we live for, you know, as competitive human beings in sport. You know, those are the moments you live for, and it's a privilege to be part of that. Embrace that privilege. Walk towards the flame, you know, um, uh, and, 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 and kind of make the most of that opportunity because they don't come around that often. And that mindset isn't really about just being brave. It's actually genuinely about enjoying it, and that's an incredibly resourceful environment, personal environment to be in. Um, because you're relaxed, you're enjoying it, you're playing and you're playful, um, you're connected in a, in a different way and much better than sitting there completely nervous thinking, being risk averse and hoping I don't make a mistake. So courage would be sitting there going, I hope I don't make a mistake, I'm really brave to be here. I think the opposite is just embrace it and be grateful for the privilege and make the most of it. So there's our challenge. Are we going to be gripped by fear, worrying what everyone else will think of us if we make a misstep? Or should we embrace that as part of what we expect of ourselves? We're human. We want to go for it and enjoy the ride. We want to twist the throttle and feel that fire in our belly as we race forward towards our goal. Because this road leads to new adventures, new experience, growth, personal growth, and ultimately fewer regrets. There are some risks that you just can't take and there are some that you can't afford not to take and I really hope that this episode has helped you to differentiate between the two. If you've enjoyed it please do subscribe to the show and make sure you share it with your network so that we can get everybody taking this uh, life full of uh, calculated risks and having more fun. And uh, remember, if you want any support with content or events for your business, then just drop me a note through to hello at sportingedge.com and we'll be able to design something for your exact needs. We've got some really exciting developments coming over the next few months at Sporting Edge. So please do come over to my LinkedIn account. You'll see lots of posts coming in there and you'll be able to join my community, sharing lots of discussion and debates about high performance, about mindset and about great teams and leadership as well. So I'd love to meet you over on LinkedIn. So until next time, uh, may all your risks be rewarded and I'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Inside the Mind of Champions. 
Connect with Jeremy's LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram links in today's show notes to receive the latest insights from his work. If you'd like to get access to Sporting Edge's digital library or book Jeremy for a conference speech or webinar, then please visit www.sportingedge.com or email hello at sportingedge.com.